And I remember shaking uh, because the word homosexuality is not in the Bible. Welcome back to Mormon Lesbian, your one-stop shop for everything dealing with religion and sexuality. I'm your host, Jennifer Lene Lee. I grew up Mormon, and I am a lesbian. While figuring out my identity, I became obsessed with the ways in which religion influences our perception of sexuality. And I know there has to be other people out there like me. So... I started this podcast because I couldn't figure out how to work the Reddit boards. If before you've even heard this podcast, you already know that such a combo is your jam, please feel free to subscribe on iTunes and follow it on Spotify. The Bible. It's a big word that gives rise to a throng of different emotions and ideas, depending on who you're talking to. Salvation, security, family, community, rules, teachings, blessings, faith, but also fear, isolation, and misunderstanding. Today I want to talk about what we know about the Bible, and more importantly, what we don't. If I were to tell you all that history books and the Bible have a lot in common, The average person would probably interpret that to mean that there are historical accuracies in both. Well, yes. But when I make that claim, I'm referring to a much grander commonality not often addressed by our society. The fact that both are shaped by the historical context in which they were written. Meaning, the story they tell is just a small percentage of the perspectives available in the scheme of global history and religion. History books were written by and for the victors, or the people in power, for our country and much of the world. This means that they were written in large part by wealthy, straight, white, cisgender, and able-bodied men. As evidence to this, I'd suggest the lack of education I received on the realities of slavery and the genocide of the indigenous peoples. For us to really understand a book like the Bible, one that is used all over the world to dictate the lives of millions of people, I think it's important to really investigate its meaning time and time again. Personally, I know when I used to read the Bible, I could read the same passage once a year, and each time something new would resonate with me. Again, if somebody is saying that they're living their life on a collection of texts, and I do not mean that in a derogatory way, if they are saying that, but then they don't care enough to learn the language, the context, and the history, what are they really saying? The man you're listening to is Dr. Richard McCarty. He's an expert on the Bible, a published author on the topic of sexual virtue, and a professor of religious studies at Mercyhurst University. And when I say Bible expert, I don't mean someone who's read the Holy Book a bajillion times. I mean someone who's read the original Greek and Hebrew versions. Someone who can tell you exactly what was going on in the Middle Eastern and European societies during each period of history when the chapters and texts were written. But he's also someone who currently practices and preaches as a pastor at the Ecumenical United Church of Christ. He is, in my mind, the perfect person to speak with. And honestly, if he wanted to take over this podcast, (laughs) I'd let him. 
as is my personal agenda and the agenda of this podcast, I pressed Riches and Knowledge for some answers on the most commonly referenced Bible verses pertaining to what we now refer to as the LGBTQ community. I'd like to make a disclaimer at the top of this episode that I am in no way trying to negate anyone's personal beliefs about the Bible. Rather, I'm only trying to open up a discussion about the historical context and epistemology or the translation of language within the Bible, because I know that it can help a lot of people like it helped me. Okay, so kind of like a big question. Via a long-winded question, I'm asking Richard about the seven or so verses that are supposed to renounce homosexuality in practice and condemn it as a sin. What I want to know is whether, in his opinion, there is any truth to them. Well, I mean, I grew up in, you know, um, the same Western world in which the assumption is that the Bible condemns um, homosexuality, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I I grew up with that idea. So, you know, to to think otherwise now and to say otherwise, it wasn't, you know, necessarily like this, oh, yeah, of course, right, Um, type of thing that happened early on. I just assumed that what had been passed on, you know, was generally correct. Um, However... You know, it was when it was especially when I was in seminary and I was studying the the languages in the context uh, more deeply. Like, you know, we're um, we're trained in Greek and we're trained in Hebrew, and we have to take history classes. And uh, that, I mean, they're academic, um, so it's not um, it's it's not somebody's just opinion, right? Like, you know, like yeah. teaching these classes, it's it's, it's serious scholarship. And I remember LGBT issues had kind of come to a head um, where I was at seminary, um, and not necessarily at the seminary, but at the um, adjacent college. There was a lot of debate among their faculty and students about the ethics of homosexuality. And I think at that time, my sense was something along the lines of, well, you know, maybe a person is gay for complex reasons, but it's wrong to express that physically. I think that was generally my sense kind of coming into a seminary. Um, but then I sat down with the text and I remember thinking to myself, okay, you, you've got to account for this. And, and I'd taken great interest um, in it. And I went to those, you know, six or seven places where people commonly go to, uh, to condemn um, what we call today homosexuality or LGBT relationships. And I remember shaking uh, because the word homosexuality is not in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And that was a moment at which, you know, I, I was shaking in, in large part, I mean, probably 80%, because I'm the type of person when I see that something is not correct, I'm not going to be able to stay quiet about it, right? I'm going to say something about it. And I knew that talking about that in our culture at that time, and even now, like today, is going to make a lot of people mad, you know. Um, but how can you say that the Bible condemns homosexuality when the word isn't even there? And then that, you know, so that was my first sense is like, wait, all is not what they've told us. Um, and then, you know, you start doing some studies into like just, just you know, okay, if we're going to talk about the ethics of homosexuality, then let's actually talk about 
what is it we're talking about? And where did that word come from and what does it mean? So the word did not even exist until the middle part of the 19th century. And it was coined by, uh, I believe it was a Hungarian uh, social scientist hired by the Germans to go around and survey uh, the sexual practices of the German people. And he kept, his name is Karl Maria Kurtbeni, and he kept um, running up against pockets of men in urban areas who were having sex with men. And his question was, well, why are you doing this? And the answer was, uh, because we desire to. And so Karl Maria Kurtbeni coined the term homosexualistin in German uh, to mean um, not, not just particular acts with genitals, mm-hmm. but the disposition, the desire, right, to, to have that in the first place. So he coins that, and then immediately the British and American psychiatric centers are like, oh my goodness, like this is interesting. There is a desire among some people uh, for uh, same-sex activity. Because up until that point, I mean, the medieval worldview had basically said that uh, people were having sex with members of the same sex because they couldn't find an opposite sex member, almost like they got bored or they, they were desperate. There was not, and there is not, right, language really in the medieval Christian world, and certainly not in the Bible, about a, an innate disposition or orientation towards not just sexual relationships, but, you know, affectional relationships uh, between people of the same sex. So, you know, so already we can say, like, the Bible just doesn't address homosexuality as an orientation, and the word homosexuality is a clinical term. So, you know, if somebody's going to use the word homosexual or homosexuality, they have to admit that they're talking about something very well defined, which is, uh, again, an innate disposition for the same sex. Now, what the the early, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century uh, psychiatric centers said is, well, yes, some people have that, but it's a pathology, right? So it's something that leads to um, um, uh, the, the, the downfall, right, to, for lack of a better term, of, of a human being, or that it's not healthy or whatever you might want to say, uh, mentally or physically. And, but that, that didn't stop the specialist from studying um, both people who have same-sex orientation, as well as noting that a lot of animals seem to do too. And in the 1970s, the American Psychological Association, after many years of study, said, you know what, this, this diagnosis of pathology is actually incorrect. There's nothing about having same-sex desire that in any way disadvantages somebody or harms them innately. The only way that a person is disadvantaged is if the society is actually prejudiced. So, you know, a, a pathology by definition is something that's harmful for you. And the science is confirmed over, you know, at that point, um, like almost 100 years of study, that there is nothing about being what we now call gay, lesbian, bisexual, uh, in the sexual orientation side of things. There's nothing about that innately that leads to harm. The only harm that comes is when you're rejected by other people. So, um, so I continue to study that. I'm like, well, that's interesting, right? And then the big question, well, where does it come from, right? So if it's not a pathology, where does sexuality come from? And for that, you turn to the sciences. And there you find, you know, a long line of people speculating about what it is. So Freud thought that um, uh, men who are homosexuals 
uh, had a distant father and an overbearing mother, and he said something like women who are lesbian uh, had at some point seen their father's penis and then looked down at their own genitalia and didn't see a penis, so they perceived themselves to be castrated, so they got mad at their dads and took a woman as their mate. This is all ridiculous, by the way, right? It's not true. It is just absolutely not true. But, you know, the, the, uh, the explanations for why some people are gay or lesbian these faulty explanations have persisted in society to this day. So you can still find people who will say that certain men understand themselves as gay because they had a distant father and an overbearing mother. And it's just not true. When we've actually looked at uh, uh, studies of uh, straight people versus gay people, we found some things. For example, uh, in a study by Pewterbaugh from the late 70s to the early 90s, uh, he discovered that uh, it's something like over 70% of identical twins have matching uh, um, gay orientation even when separated at birth. And dizygotic twins or fraternal twins have a very, very low rate. It's like 23%. Uh, when we were able to start uh, studying human genetics by scanning the human genome, there was a, a geneticist by the name of uh, Dean Richard Hamer. He found a genetic marker, it's called XQ28, that 83% of gay men have that straight men do not have. Uh, there was a study, I believe it was in 2005, by Wysowski and Martin, who saw that if you expose people to pheromones and watch their, you know, they, you know, what are they turned on to, they are only, except for one group of bisexual men, you're only turned on by, you know, what your body turns on to. So straight men were only turned on to female pheromone. Uh, fem straight women were only turned on by male pheromone. Uh, lesbians were only turned on by female pheromone. Gay men only by male. So, you know, there's this just overabundance of evidence that, you know, uh, sexual orientation from homosexual to heterosexual is an innate biological feature of humanity. And again, so why am I going into this? The Bible never talks about that, right? The Bi what the Bible does have are a couple references that either appear to be about uh, same-sex relations um, uh, in, a, in, a, in a physical way, right? So fair enough, right? So just because something is natural doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. It's really important that we understand that homosexuality is an innate feature, but it doesn't ever tell us when it would be good to enact it. So you go back to the scriptures knowing that, and you say, okay, first of all, the word homosexuality is not in there. So if you see that word in English in the Bible, somebody has put that there, right? Mm -hmm. and, and we need to figure out why. So you go through the text, and, um, you know, as I say in the book, you look at the, a common story like Sodom and Gomorrah that uh, medieval Christians to modern Christians have said, oh, this is about, you know, same-sex activity. Well, on the one hand, the Sodom and Gomorrah story does show a gang of men coming to uh, have sex with angels who they think are men. What people don't realize is that um, that type of um, that, that that form of expression of sex looks very much like dominance and rape. And I think the story tells us that in itself. So the angels are in Lot's house. The men of Sodom come pound on the door and say, "Let us know your men," uh, which is a euphemism for sex. And then what does Lot do? Lot offers him, offers them his daughter. Now, first of all, that's awful. Mm -hmm. Second of all, just ask the question, if, if we can even bracket that for a moment, that, you know, that, it, that it's awful, and it is awful. Do you offer gay men women? Of course not, right? And what we also don't realize about the ancient Near East is that certain men 
would use rape as a, as a way of demonstrating social dominance over other men. Um, uh, gay men do not go around. I mean, if the story is about homosexuality and about God doesn't like homosexuality and God doesn't like gay relationships, I mean, think about the, the mental gymnastics you have to do in order to come to that conclusion. You're taking a scene, it's a gang scene of men coming to dominate other men, in this case, angels, right? And you're, you're equating that with Bob and Tom down your street who are in love with each other and have an innate orientation for each other. You're equating ancient rape for domination with your neighbor's private sex life, which is about making love. It, it, it's not even a comparison. And that's where actually in the book I draw on uh, 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 Richard Hayes, who is a conservative evangelical scholar, uh, who says, you're right, this, is, this story is not about homosexuality. It is about rape. It's about violent inhospitality. And, um, uh, and as a result uh, of, you know, of, of learning that, you cannot use that text to condemn LGBT people. Now, you know, if somebody comes back and says, oh, no, this is just all liberals, you know, trying to, you know, argue for what they already believe. Well, actually, that's not true. If you turn to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, verse 49, what you'll find is that there, um, you know, that ancient text says that the sin of Sodom was that uh, Sodom had, uh, had all types of resources, but did not help the poor and the needy and those who were in, in need. And so they were destroyed as a result of it. So it's a, it's a cautionary tale, right, about being how you treat your neighbor next to you. It's not a story about um, gay people. And so I think that um, a number of modern Christians have just really read that the wrong way because they have not taken the time to engage in history and language to know really what's going on. And I would say that the same thing is true with the, the, just a couple other passages in, in the Bible. So the next one would be uh, from the book of Leviticus, where you find a passage that says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Some people say, well, that, you know, that's very clear. Same-sex activity is wrong. And yet we forget that Leviticus belongs to um, the holiness codes for the Jewish people. The Jewish people, uh, traditional Jewish people, both then and now, were called to be set apart in many ways. Um, so, you know, they were called to be set apart in terms of how they uh, worshipped God. So their ritual was very um, uh, defined. They could not eat certain foods. They could not eat. Uh, uh, they could not wear fabrics of mixed threads. They had to be careful about how they farmed particular seeds. Uh, even in uh, opposite sex relationships. Um, you were considered to be ritually unclean if you had sex in or around the time of a woman's menstruation. In fact, she's not even allowed to touch her husband uh, during that time. A man is considered to be unclean if he had I mean, if you actually take the, the text seriously, what you find is that the Jewish people had a very regimented, and I mean that in the best sense, a very regimented code of what it means to be holy and distinct from all other uh, nations, which is what they're called to do. But the word holy, as far as I read it, is not like halo around your head, are you morally good? The word holy means to be set apart from. And so if you take those texts seriously, and I mean all of the book of Leviticus seriously, it's showing Jewish people how to be set apart from all the other nations. And then when you talk to some Jewish scholars, they'll be the ones to point out to you that, you know, even in the law, there are the Jewish law, there are some laws that make sense. Uh, they're called the Mishpatim laws and some laws that don't make any sense, and they're called the Kukim laws. And for Jewish people, whether they make sense or not, 
they're, all of the laws help to demarcate them as Jewish people so that they can be set apart from all the other nations, um, not just to be God's chosen, but ultimately uh, to function as priests to bless the whole earth. So right, uh, in the book of Leviticus, um, Jewish men are not allowed to engage in anal intercourse, neither are they allowed to engage in intercourse with a woman during or around the time of menstruation, neither are they allowed to eat shrimp, they're not allowed to wear mixed threads, uh, you know, you, you name it, all of those things demarcated Jewish man. So one of the things that I admit is, you know, if I'm an Orthodox Jewish man and I'm trying to keep all 613 commandments, it it might very well be possible. So, for example, if I was a gay Orthodox Jewish man, it might very well be that that activity would be something I couldn't do, but only be in the same way that I can't eat shrimp, right, or I can't have bacon. It sets me apart as a Jewish person. That said, um, there are some Jewish scholars, Orthodox Jewish scholars, uh, in the minority, but they suggest that um, that that prohibition would need to be considered in light of what we now know about gay people. Uh, for me, I would say maybe maybe that's true. Maybe that is true. But it does look to me like if I can't eat shrimp, well, then I can't. You know, then then the, then the Jewish person can't engage in anal intercourse. That's not a condemnation of homosexuality. That's not a condemnation of uh, two men or two women love each other, but that is saying that prohibits that activity for that particular group for a very specific reason. What I find interesting is, while I'm sure they're out there, I don't hear a lot of Jewish people citing that verse in order to condemn homosexuality. I hear a lot of Christians citing that verse. And that's where, me, where for me, I think, now wait a second, the, the Christian who cites Leviticus 18.22 or 20.13 to condemn same-sex relationships is certainly not following any of the other law, right? Um, so, you know, that that Christian who cites Leviticus 18.22 and puts it on a picket sign does not cite something like Leviticus 11 or wherever it is, you know, and, and stand outside of Red Lobster and say, God hates shrimp. I mean, they, you just don't do that, right? And then you ask them the question, well, why do you think you can eat shrimp? And why do you think that you can have bacon? And why, you know, why are you wearing polyester? And why don't you care about genetically modified crops? You know, it's all in the Bible. And they'll say something like, well, that's the old ritual law. And they're right about it. But what's interesting is that they have then selectively taken a couple of ritual holiness codes for Jewish people and then said, oh, but this one's a universal moral law. And then if you ask the question, how do you know that, right? Um, then, it's, well, you know, because of what's said in the New Testament. So then you have to say, okay, let's go ahead and take a look at what is said in the New Testament about these issues. And there you find, you know, even less. So um, they'll cite something like 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1, which in some English translations of the Bible you'll find the word homosexual. But if you actually go back into the Greek, the Greek word is arsenikoitai. And Dale Martin uh, at Yale has done, a, a biblical scholar at Yale has done a lot of interesting work on this because what he has shown is, while we may never know exactly what Paul meant by using that word in that way, the word is a compound word. It means male and intercourse. And so you kind of get a sense of, oh, okay, well, men having intercourse, well, they must be gay. But not so fast, uh, Dale Martin says. Um, that word was actually used within the first, I don't know, like first, second, third century to mean exploitation. And we actually have uh, literary examples of this in uh, the Acts of John, which is a non-biblical book, and the Oracle of Sabine, which list uh, arsenikoitai as a vice or as a sin, but it's, it's 
it's not put in the, the sin list of sexual sins. It's actually put in the list of social sins. And it's meant to say not to exploit people in the marketplace. And then some people say, well, why? Like, why would the word male intercourse be used to mean exploitation? And in order to understand it, you kind of have to not use polite language. So uh, you think about today, um, if I come home tonight and I say, man, I really got screwed over at work today, or I said it more, you know, um, uh, with more of a curse. I said, I really got over today at work, right? If I said that, I'm not going to be asked whether I was sexually assaulted, right? The person's going to get it, right? If I say I got over, I got screwed over, I'm using sexual imagery to mean what? I was taken advantage of. I was exploited. And I th- and, and here I think is some really important, uh, a really important moment to reflect on the words we use and why. So when we use the, word, the F word, right, as a curse, even though it's kind of a reference to sex, or we say screw, like screwed over, screw you, it's, it can be a reference to sex. What are we really saying? We're hearkening back to that old idea. It all goes all the way back to, to Sodom and Gomorrah of using sex as a form of domination. So to say I got effed over, I got screwed over, I got arsenokoitide in Greek, is to say, yeah, violence was done to me today. So it draws on that imagery of sexual violence to communicate something moral, which is you were taken advantage of. Uh, and, And that's just something that we can point to in history and say, look, the word homosexuality did not exist. This word that Paul chose to use was being used at that time to mean exploitation. And sure enough, you look in 1 Corinthians 6, and where does he put arsenicoitai next to? He puts it next to things like thieves, the greedy, right? Things that all fall into when you take advantage of other people. So it's just not true that the word homosexuality is in the text, and the one word that they've tried to translate as homosexuality, it doesn't mean that. Uh, Another word in that same uh, passage, 1 Corinthians 6 or 1 Timothy 1, (coughs) excuse me, um, is the word malakoi. And malakoi has been translated in some Bibles as, English Bibles, as male prostitutes. Because the word uh, malakos means soft, and malakoi, the O-I at the end, is the third person plural masculine. So you have some Bible translation committees saying, oh, third person plural masculine, soft, soft men, who were soft men in the first century? And they suppose that that means men who are being penetrated. <clears throat> what Dale Martin also, and again, has shown is that the word malakoi was not just used to refer to um, uh, soft men in a feminine sense. It referred to luxurious soft clothes. It referred to uh, expensive meals, uh, like where you didn't get very much food, but you paid too much for it. Uh, it referred to men who prettied themselves up for women, not other men, interestingly enough. So when people say, oh, that means male prostitute, and that's bad because male prostitutes were getting penetrated, um, there's another problem there, too, which is a lot of uh, prostitutes in that time were slaves. And so to say that Paul is somehow saying that male, like if it was referring to male prostitutes, that somehow um, he's saying that male prostitutes don't belong to the kingdom of God, when most of them were either sold into it or born into slavery, that's not the Christianity that Jesus preaches. In fact, Jesus was the one who said that prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God before those who think they are righteous. So when you take a look at those texts, it's just it's not referring uh, to homosexuality as we know it today. It's referring to exploitation, and the word malakos really is probably a reference to uh, 
people who really don't have a moral spine, right? Who just kind of are really flimsy and don't ever stand up for anything. Um, so there's after that, there's really only one other text, and that's uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, which a number of people thinks is just a slam dunk statement against homosexuality. Again, he never uses the word homosexuality. What he does do is uh, he talks about uh, various sins that are happening uh, in you know in Rome or throughout the world. And at one point he says that the women exchange natural intercourse for unnatural, and so too the men exchange natural intercourse. Um, uh, for unnatural and receiving their own person the due penalty for their error and uh, people like well that's homosexuality that must mean you know women having sex with women and men having sex with men when in fact that's not what it says notice it doesn't say women having sex with women it says unnatural intercourse and that phrase in the in the first century meant a lot of things it included women being on top of men during intercourse if we want to be really explicit uh, in the Roman world the phrase uh, exchanged natural for unnatural, uh, part of that is the Greek phrase parafusin, which means against nature or in excess of nature. And that does not mean sexual orientation, but it's a moral condition of being excessive. So uh, if you really want to take Paul's language about what, what is the sin of sexuality that he's seeing in his day, he also didn't have the word sexuality, by the way, but if you want, you know, what was, what was the sin he was seeing, um, uh, sexual sin at that time, what he did say was that he saw a lot of sexual excess, para fusin, right, going, about, going beyond what is natural. It's modern Christians who think that Paul has an idea about sexual orientation. He does not. That concept is not there. Um, all the natural world has is, the, the ancient world has, is a sense of, you know, what is good and what is bad use of our bodies. What Paul did say is, there is para fusin, there was against nature or in excess of nature, what is good for us. And when you take a look at what Roman men were doing publicly in that time, we absolutely know that uh, Roman men were also using sex in violent ways. Um, uh, there's a story of uh, Gaius Caligula, uh, leader of the Roman Empire, who one time, uh, the story, history has different versions of it, but either verbally sexually shamed one of his subordinates or physically sexually shamed one of his subordinates and as a result he did it so viciously that there was a conspiracy to kill him and they did uh and they took a pole with a hook on it and ripped him from anus through his stomach uh for being a sexually excessive uh, uh, vicious type being so we we know that that's there so to assume that paul is referring to homosexuality is to say that you already think that homosexuality is wrong, and therefore you need a passage to confirm that it's wrong. So you're going to say, I think that that's about homosexuality, and that's what Paul meant, and so now the Bible says that it's wrong. Well, notice what's really happened. No, you said that it was wrong, right? And then now you're using a text, cherry-picking a text to say, I think this is referring to what I'm referring to, therefore now I can claim that the Bible is against homosexuality. When I think that the uh, more, uh, as objectively as we can, study the text is to say, well, none of us know what Paul was referring to, but if, if we look at the historical context and the language of what that meant, we certainly can say that he was referring to excessive behavior because that was there, and we cannot say that he was necessarily referring to same-sex activity, uh, certainly not homosexuality, right, but not, not like mutual same-sex activity because that's not what he says in the text. So people are putting words in his mouth that way. So, wow, that was 
you you have such a wealth of knowledge on this that you are the perfect person to talk to. Thank you so much for diving deep. Yeah, no, no problem. Well, and it, 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 it's a lot, right? I yeah. mean, I think that, you know, if somebody was hearing it for the first time, they'd be like, wait, what? Let's go back to Sodom and Gomorrah. What did you say? What did you say about Leviticus? What about this? Yeah. You know, um, there's so much, and this is why, you know, like even when writing a book, like I have one chapter devoted to the Bible and homosexuality, and on the one hand, I'm like, that's not enough, right? Because yeah. there's so much more. But even in that chapter, if you were to read it and set it down and somebody would say, well, what did that chapter say on homosexuality? I think there would probably be like a pause, right, where you'd be like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's because it's so complex. But just because something is complex doesn't mean that, you know, like it, it, it's, the complexity of the issue is not to confuse the issue. Actually, I think it's the other way around, which is to say, if we're going to go to the Bible and ask, what does it say about mutual and or loving same-sex relationships, number one, nothing. Number two, if you were to try to apply these texts that either have a word that looks like it's about same-sex activity or is referencing same-sex activity, like, say, uh, Leviticus 18 uh, or maybe Romans 1, the question is, yeah, but what are they referring to, right? Like, mm -hmm. Romans 1 could be referring to rape. How You couldn't possibly equate rape with mutual and or loving same-sex activity. I mean, come on. Uh, traditional Christians would say heterosexual rape is wrong. They would never take a rape scene in the Bible and claim that heterosexuality is wrong because rape is condemned. Mm -hmm. In the same way, I think what has happened is, and these are people who are, you know, otherwise probably very intentional, very faithful people who have all their lives just been taught that homosexuality is wrong, and so they come to that passage and all they can see is homosexuality in general. They're not asking those specific questions, but here's where I, I would say we have to be careful. Is that not the exact same method that Christians used in the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s to justify slavery? Yep. When they went to the Bible and they said, oh, it says slaves obey your masters, that must mean slavery is okay. And that's exactly what they did, right? They refused to take a look at the complicated, complex history, the language, in order to know that, that would, it is completely inappropriate to use those verses to try and justify the slave trade as it happened in this world, in our nation. Uh, and eventually Christians came around far too late, by the way, and said, you know what, we were wrong about that. Our ancestors were wrong. It's wrong to use those texts in that way. It's not what it's talking about. So I know, I mean, I, and I believe, you know, in the, in the depths of my heart, that people who care a lot about the Bible, who would never use those passages to enslave people, I think just need some time and education to really sit down and say, you know what, those six, seven passages really aren't talking about gay or lesbian people or their relationships. It's talking about something else. Yeah. That was um, kind of one of my questions was like, it, I know a ton of people, like you said, who love the Bible, who are religious, read it every day, but they don't have this knowledge that you or I have of the deeper meaning and the epistemology. So I was wondering, I think like obviously the best step is helping them get education and like just people being open and being Christ-like with their hearts etc. Yeah. But do you yeah. have a yeah. specific version of the Bible that you think is more clear than others? Yeah, the, 
Greek and the Hebrew manuscripts. Yeah. I mean, I'm not joking about it. Like, you know, uh, and this is where I would say both academically and if I was asked as a pastor, like, if somebody comes to me and says that they their life is shaped, driven, informed by the Bible, and they might say it like God's Word or something like this, you know, um, I'd say, okay, all right. So let's talk about the Bible then, right? Let's let's do that. Let's sit down and ask the question, like, what what can we learn? What principles come from the Bible? If we only sit down with the Bible in our language that's translated by a translation committee who is sometimes making some choices that we would not agree with, and, and that's not a liberal thing to say. There's a reason why there are a variety of translations out there, because different translation committees say no, I think it's better to say it this way, right? You know, uh, that's why we have like 12 different versions, and that's an arbitrary number. Um, so I think that if a person really cares, if somebody comes to me and says, you know, Rich, I disagree with you, it's be- but it's because I believe the Bible and I think you're wrong, my response will be, let's sit down with the Bible then. And let's not just sit down with the English, let's sit down with the Greek and the Hebrew. And if somebody says, I don't know Greek and Hebrew, I'll say, well, then let's sit down with the lexicon, right? And actually look at what these words mean. Mm-hmm. Or let's take some years and learn together the language. <laughs> yeah. And if somebody thinks that that's ridiculous, I don't. Because, again, if somebody is saying that they're living their life on a collection of texts, and I do not mean that in a derogatory way, if they are saying that, but then they don't care enough to learn the language, the context, and the history, what are they really saying? You know, yeah. are they saying, well... I, I know what God means. Do you? <laughs> you know, I know I don't. Uh, yeah, I, I fully admit, like I said, I am not God. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we do have is a mind, and we do have scholarship that we can benefit from now more than ever. We can sit down and we can come to the text, and I would hope that everybody comes to the text without a foregone conclusion. Like, I can't come to the Bible and say, oh, it's not against homosexuality, and then find reasons to say that. Mm-hmm. I've got to come to the Bible and say, does it say anything about homosexuality? Does it say anything about same-sex relationships? And if it does, of what kind? And then, for example, if the Bible said that homosexual, like same-sex activity is always wrong no matter what, not just, you know, rape, but, you know, mutual. If it said that, then I would have to say it says that, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing scholarship. But I think that the reason why I'm called a revisionist, back to that point <laughs> that you had asked, is because... And others, you know, who come to the same conclusion that I do is, all right, would this would this represent a revision of what is taught by people who call themselves traditional? Yes. But actually, if you're just asking the question, you know, if you're creating an ethic out of the biblical texts and you're doing so, you know, with integrity, um, on the basis of what words mean in that time, you know, and saying, like, I, I can't tell you exactly, you know, for sure what it meant, but I do know that these words only mean these things, so here's the range of it. I mean, that's not revising. That's actually sitting down and saying, you know, what can we faithfully, academically speaking, or even theologically speaking, what can we faithfully interpret from the text? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, okay, I had, in my mind, I have a personal question, just something that I've been wondering about religion so the book of mormon is like it was it's this whole thing where if you know the story like joseph smith was visited when he was a kid yes, and like yep, angels told, yep. yeah right so he um was told to translate the bible yada yada so 
I've always had this question in my mind of if God wanted us to like have faith in him because faith is the biggest concept in religious communities if he wanted us to have faith in him why would he have like make us put faith in the people who are writing his words down like all of these prophets and such because essentially like trusting the bible trusting the book of mormon all of these things we're not trusting god we're trusting man technically because man wrote it so i always had that question of like why would god expect us to trust men before him so I was wondering yeah, if you I mean, have yeah. I mean, it's an excellent question. Um, I think I think part of the reason why we might ask the question that way is because of how the Bible has been presented. Mm-hmm. So we, we live in a culture, broadly speaking, that has in the last, probably especially the last 150 years or so, maybe a little bit more, um, not asked a lot of critical questions about the Bible, but also we've had a number of quarters, especially in Protestant Christianity, that has treated the Bible as, quote, the literal words of God. Mm-hmm. And so when when you've been shaped that way, or that's even just kind of some part of the one's mind that, okay, the Bible is God's word, like the page, the words on the page are God's word. When mm-hmm. that's When that's the way that it's been framed, and then all of a sudden you discover, like, oh, hey, there's a different way to interpret this. Or, you know, oh, like, they meant this and this. And like, then all of a sudden it looks like um, it's all a sham, right? Like, oh, you just want me to believe you, right? <laughs> that type yeah. of a thing. <laughs> well, okay, I mean, I get that. But what if, what if the presentation of the Bible that way is the wrong presentation? I mean, the Bible is not a book. It's a bookshelf, right? Mm-hmm. It's written by many people across many, you know, epochs of time in different languages and different cultures. What and, and, and for Christians in particular, so this goes outside of my scholarship, right? If, yeah. if I was speaking as you know a theologian, the word of God that we are to listen for, traditionally speaking, is the second person of the Trinity, right? Mm-hmm. So it's God, and then the book of the Gospel of John says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. Um, that's Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. So the word of God is not like words. The word, I mean, the, the word logos, right? The, the logos of God yeah. is the divine wisdom of God, right? Um, and so... As I understand it, now again, this is, this is making a theological decision, uh, and many people maybe disagree with me, but to listen for the Word of God or to encounter the Word of God is to have an encounter with God. The question then becomes, how do I do that? Scriptures, which by definitions are writings uh, in that bookshelf of the Bible, right, offer different, either different encounters that people had with God their reflections on God, their questions, you know, uh, poetry, songs, uh, theological portraits, theological histories. I mean, these these scriptures, if you look at it not as the words on the page are dictated by God, but if you look at the scriptures as a collection of encounters by which you can read and study, and if we ask the question, gosh, what does this text mean? What were those people going through? How were they encountering God? Then the modern-day person, and this is totally from a perspective of faith, not scholarship, the, the, 
the modern person might, if you if you look at the text that way, is not telling you what to do, but giving you a place of interface mm-hmm. to listen for the Word of God to speak. That's a completely different approach. So, for example, um, go back to Romans 1, right? The one where people quote against homosexuality. People don't read that passage long enough because what Paul does is he's like, hey, look at them over there. They're worshiping idols, right? That's terrible. They're being sexually excessive. That's bad. They lie to their, you know, I think it's like they lie, they cheat, they're disobedient to their parents. And then if you just keep reading, just keep going through, chapter 2, verse 1 says, therefore you, the judge, have no excuse since you, the judge, are doing the very same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, bam, right? What was Paul's point of listing all those things? If you're a literalist, you look at that and say, well, Paul's listing all the sins that you should not commit, and if one of them's homosexuality and you're gay, well, then that's bad, and you're going to hell. That's not what Paul was doing. Paul was trying to trap self-righteous Christians by pointing out some things, yes, that are bad. So, yes, murder's bad, right? Sexual excess, bad. But that's not homosexuality. But he's trying to trick them to say, you know what, yeah, you know what, I might not be worshiping that statue over there, and I might not have been sexually excessive over here, but when he starts saying things like disobedient to my parents, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. yeah, I am, you know, mm-hmm. or have been. And, and, and then that's when he says, he turns it and he goes, you, right, can't judge. He literally says, you can't judge. So the whole point of Romans 1 and into Romans 2 is not just to give us a list of sins, it's so that we won't be self-righteous, because all of us, Paul says, fall short of the, you know, of perfection. He says that all, all of us fall short of the glory of God. That's true, right? Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, I can't judge, right? I, I need to discern, like, some of the good and the bad, but I don't get to be the, I don't get to play God and judge other people. So when I approach Romans 1, not to give me some, like, just give me the answers, give me the answers, but I look at Romans 1 as a place to wrestle with mm-hmm. the things of God and humanity, then I can listen for God's word to speak, which is not necessarily the words on the page, but the truth that we arrive at. Now, admittedly, we have to be humble about that because I am not, again, I am not God, right? And so if there's a truth that seems to appear from the text, I can hold that with an open hand and say, right now, I think, you know, this is what I think this means, but I need to talk to other people, both those who might agree with me and those that might disagree with me. And only by that kind of communal effort of dialogue and discourse do I think we'll ever hear the word or the wisdom of God speak. So I think that when people weaponize the Bible as a list of rules, as, as instead of a place to encounter stories mm-hmm. and teachings that we can wrestle with, uh, then yeah, I, I think the Bible's going to be very frustrating if it's just a list of rules. If it's a place, if it's one place to encounter God by wrestling with interpretations and that, then I think it's much more beneficial. This has been Jennifer Linnae Lee in discussion, or rather listening to, Dr. Richard McCarty for the podcast Mormon Lesbian. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe so you can be notified when I release new episodes. And if you'd like to share your own personal journey with faith and sexuality, I encourage you to email me at themormonlesbian at gmail.com. Until then, I'll leave you by correcting a common misconception about Mormons. They don't ride bikes everywhere.
stop asking them if they do.